Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I don't think I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Just sit down. Let's stick in your eyes. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean... Hi and welcome to this Democracy Sausage episode which falls in the electorally charged space between the federal budget and the calling of an election. I'm Mark Kenny and I'm joined as is customary by my friend and colleague Dr Maria Tafaga, political scientist at ANU's School of Politics and International Relations. Hi Maria. Hello Mark, how are you? I am very well thanks, although I must say a little bit a little tired after what's been a pretty frenetic sort of period uh, in my kind of hybrid um, hybrid life uh, on both sides of the lake. Budget time is 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 actually a stressful time for a lot of people in Canberra. That's true. Yeah, possibly uh, not so many voters as might be the case after some budgets, but that may have something to do with the proximity of an election. Also with us is another outstanding political scientist, Dr. Jill Shepherd from the same School of Politics and International Relations at ANU. Welcome back, Jill. G'day, Mark. Good to have you along, as always. Probably the first time in 2022, but hopefully not the last. And from RMIT, it's welcome to Dr. Leonora Riss, who is an, an economist and who, among other things, many other things, in fact, is co-founder of the Women in Economics Network and who spoke so persuasively at a Women in Economics uh, event at the National Press Club last year with, with a couple of other eminent economists, and it was a really terrific event. Welcome to you, Leonora. Hi, Mark. Hi, Maria. Thanks for having me. Now, Scott Morrison told a Perth interviewer just a few hours, really, before we record this chat that he doesn't plan to go to the Governor-General this weekend because there is governing to do. Perhaps he should have thought of that three years ago. Um, No, that was unkind. Uh, Look, but uh, it is is one of those things we can't uh, necessarily take literally. He could just, you know, you might want to just say, well, he could say that. He would say that anyway. Um, he's not going to flag when he's going to do it, probably. Uh, but on the other hand, we know it's going to be very, very soon. Um, so that's really the the frame in which we look at this budget. But it's a difficult situation for him. He's, he, you know, he's not actually, amazingly, you're meant to be when you're the incumbent, you're meant to be in charge of all of these things. You're in charge of the timing. You're in charge of 
the arrangements on your side of the fence. Yet in his home state of New South Wales, his own party is in disarray with court battles, executive control of pre-selections, and candidates not yet on the ground in several key seats needed to win the election. In other words, seats he needs to form a majority to retain the majority he currently has, uh, they don't have candidates in right on the edge of an election. And if they're marginal seats, you would you would have wanted to have those candidates there a year ago probably, Maria. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, there has been a lot of speculation that he, he would go to the, the GG this weekend, but but yeah, he doesn't actually have all of his candidates in place. And as you say, some of these are subject to a, a legal challenge. So um no, I, I don't think he is going this weekend. That would be my that would be my 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 guess, though I guess he could resolve it by the end of the week, I suppose. Well, he could, but um I mean it just makes you wonder what 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 is going on, what sort of planning's been going on. This has been drawn right out to the very end of when the election needs to be held. It needs to be held by the twenty first of May which means that he's only really got a couple of weeks to play with now. Uh, Prime Ministers often go before the end of the three years, but uh, he's taking it right up to the end. And even with all that time, there's still there's still problems inside the New South Wales division. And we saw those problems kind of explode, really. On the same night as he was uh, you know, delivering the budget, we had uh, Senator Conchetta Fierro of Anti-Wells um, unloading on the PM, giving us a very frank assessment yes. of the man. This was an extraordinary um, speech uh, for the adjournment debate, which is, you know, traditionally can be quite a fiery um, debate. But in, in essence, um, Conchetta Ferravanti-Wells, who, who does actually have a, a track record of calling out uh, her own government, it's not the first time she's called out her own party and her own government. They call it outspoken, don't yes, they? Yes, I guess so, outspoken. <laughs> and, um, and, she's, and she's setting a good example, actually, because squeaky wheels get uh, the grease, as it, as it were. Um, but... But she basically essentially um, outlined uh, on the record and under parliamentary privilege what actually happened to her um, pre-selection for a safe for a Senate spot. And so in that, she basically said a few things. Uh, she pretty much accused the minister Alex Hawke of uh, you know arranging a. Um, a deal with Dominic Perrottet to basically shaft her out of a winnable spot on the Senate seat. Now, we should say, just just for clarity, Alex Hawke is the immigration minister. He's also very close to Scott Morrison, and he's effectively Scott Morrison's representative on the executive in New South Wales. So he's the prime minister's kind of man in the in you know uh, proxy as it were and yes. and he's described often as the PM's consigliere. That's right. And he's he's also a, an important factional power broker in his own right of the center right faction. So there are three factions in the Liberal Party, the moderates, uh you know that would be Trent Zimmerman and co the centre-right, which is Alex Hawke, uh, and the far-right, or just the right, uh, which is um, Dominic Perrottet, Conjetta Ferravanti-Wells. And in, and in, in this um, speech, uh, which uh, Conjetta uh, basically outlaid how she uh, helped Scott Morrison uh, get into Parliament in the first place, which she then deeply regretted, she explained <laughs> she explained uh, how ultimately forces are, you know, basically sanctioned or endorsed um, by Scott Morrison, made a, made a deal um, with, uh, you know, via Alex Hawke 
Hawke and Dominic Perrottet, her so-called ally, to basically shaft her out of a winnable spot on the Senate election, which she said was necessary because ultimately she had the votes. And that she sort of also outlaid some sort of extraordinary kind of, I guess, accusations um, around corruption um, and also kind of drew, I guess, the public's attention to the fact that Scott Morrison, for example, hasn't faced a pre-selection contest in, since for for a decade, which is a profound denial, I guess, of uh, party members' rights. And the final thing she said, which was perhaps the most devastating and the most shocking, was that she sort of, you know, and launched a profound character attack on the prime minister, saying that his religious uh, piety was fake, that he lacked a moral compass, that he was the most ruthless person she had met in a ruthless party, and that he was not fit to be prime minister. It was, and he's a bully. Yeah, it was. Well, I think Pauline Hanson said that, but yes, like I think it she was says it well, as well. absolutely a devastating uh, uh, broadside. It was, and and it was what what does I think more damage in respect of this is the cumulative value of this because this is not the first character assessment that we've heard of from people working closely with Scott Morrison. You know, we've had the Barnaby Joyce texts uh, talking about his his uh, Morrison's untrustworthiness. Um, uh, there's the text between um, Gladys Berejiklian and a minister. Uh, there's uh, been, of course, the things that people like Julia Banks have had to say. Um, anyone who's working in the, in the press gallery has spoken to others who, who, who are less inclined to put their names to things, but who have, uh, who tell you that Scott Morrison's pretty deeply unpopular within his own party room. So these, these sort of testimonials and, 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 and harsh comments, Julia Banks describing him as a menacing wallpaper in the way he approaches things. Uh, it, it, that that's in a sense where a lot of the damage is being done. I think with this is the sort of each time someone comes out with this, it lends a bit more credibility to to the general oh, chorus. Yeah, it certainly builds up a picture. And I and I mean, look, you know, Conchetta Ferrivanti Wells has has been around um, Liberal Party politics since the early nineties, so she would have fully understood just how uh, destabilizing her a German speech on like one hour into selling the budget would have been um, and it sort of I guess goes to the level of uh, fury that she personally has and that others within the New South Wales branch have around what is perceived to be an orchestrated campaign of administrative and bureaucratic obstruction that has actually seen rather unprecedented events like there is effectively a federal intervention of the New South Wales Liberal Party at this time which honestly I never thought I would have seen I never would have thought that a party as um, defiantly federalist, yes, mm. and resistant to state, uh, sorry, to central intervention, would have actually ever endorsed, um, you know, uh, a process in which the centre would be able, like that is, you know, like people outside of the state to impose candidates, and and you know, some of these decisions are now subject to legal um, uh, challenge, and and none of it is actually r- resolved, right? So it is, it is absolutely kind of chaos, and that was another kind of argument that she made, actually, that that he had actually destroyed the party's constitution. Yeah, and that and that and that rank and file members are so. So 
dejected and demoralized and angry about all of this that vast numbers of them are withdrawing their their services they're not they're not confident of winning the election they're not confident of of winning various seat contests many of them are pulling out and in disgust or or, or demoralized Jill is it a surprise that uh, a prime minister who actually probably made his name in the New South Wales division of the Liberal Party by being its director and therefore you know being the coming through the organisational side of the party, that, that he's ended up with this kind of localised mess in his home state when he's uh, right on the cusp of a you know really do-or-die election? I think what's what's interesting here, and it's not that fear of anti-Wells is, um, is angry with Scott Morrison because, as Maria mentioned, he, you know she's got a, a pretty galling track record on any number of issues and, and the number of progressives who I've seen you know, come out in defence of her and praising her this week has been, you know, at best surprising and at, at worst pretty shocking and disappointing, I think. Um, the really interesting thing, I think, in all this is is that Scott Morrison has uh, governed quite smoothly on the basis of having support from most sides of his party room. Now, Support is easy to hold together inside a party room when things are good, right? Mm. You've got money to spend, uh, polling is great, you know, you're keeping everyone together, you're all focused on, on on one particular goal. When things start to fall apart, you know, we had COVID, we've had bushfires, we've had floods, uh, we've had a pretty horrendous budget contraction uh, and now we've got bad polling, you know, for the government. It's a mountain of things that you, you're expected to face together and when times get tough, you know, people turn on each other. The stuff in New South Wales, like the, the boring inside baseball stuff around um, who controls which branches, uh, you know, the, these pre-selections that are going to, to um, you know, judicial challenges, that's, that's the really juicy thing here. Scott Morrison hasn't been able to hold his home state's party together, and, and it's going to blow up. I think he will go to the Governor-General this weekend because I think he needs to be able to say to the Federal Executive of the Liberal Party, time to draw a line under this, we're going in, we're going to um, appoint people and let's move on. I, I don't think he can allow this to, to drag on much, much sooner. And I think to the extent that it does create credibility problems for Scott Morrison, it is that he doesn't have this, he's losing this status as someone who can keep the party together. You yeah, know, because that's like, his thing, isn't it? Competence. It's meant to be his kind of actual so, advantage. Well, I guess what is, you know, sorry, Jill, go ahead. Inoffensive centrism, right? He, yeah. he was, the, he was the, the guy that rose above the factional intrigue in New South Wales. He had friends in every camp. That's right. He's the guy that actually ended the Turnbull-Abbott wars, really, by coming up through the middle. Right, and I think his problem is he's loved everyone. You know, he's beloved by all, but but no one actually protects you. You know, he, he's got no Praetorian Guard, and Maria and I have, have talked about this. This was Howard's strength, right? You yeah. come at Howard. He had, he had people lined up who would throw themselves on the sword for him, and Morrison doesn't have that. Well, that's the thing about parties, right? Like, Believing in something is actually really important when you're a member of a of a political party, and 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 that is why he uh, lacks a Praetorian kind of guard beyond the the sort of 
uh, Pentecostal religious circle that makes up the centre-right uh, faction. And one of the things that is driving this conflict is is um, is the perception that th- this is a conflict that is being engineered by the centre-right faction, which uh, Scott Morrison is part of, um, in order to essentially the argument goes to sort of secure um sort of long term the long term position of the center right faction which is seen to be under threat from the growing power of the right and the sort of strongholds that the um you know the moderates kind of control certain parts of sydney and they're never going to let that kind of go because of because of demographics and so this is sort of seen as a a plot internally within the liberal party for the center right to maintain its strength where it's potentially losing strength so in the seat of alex hawk um you know there is a contention from the the far right that they actually could win that seat and that's why he doesn't want to face a, a pre-selection and that by basically forcing um, some kind of federal committee that they that the center right can dominate that because they are part of the prime minister's uh, faction and in a sense kind of sort of shape the rules around how how the, the New South Wales Liberal Party will go forward and entrench their ability to kind of retain some control over the outcome that is that is sort of the sort of additional kind of context that is sort of driving um this context and so you know if this is if this is actually true right because this is all contested then it is an extraordinary thing for the prime minister to have potentially actually engineered a situation where it looks like he has lost control of his party i mean lost in all this is that one of fear fear of anti wells's complaints against morrison is that he's not christian enough yeah and not right wing not right wing enough Right. So if you're trying to kind of paint this as, you know, as a, a, a groundswell of support from your average liberal battler, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's on shaky ground. Well, it, it is. The other thing that's really interesting about it, um, I'd be, be interested in, in all your views about this, is, is that it sort of comes really just in the, in, in the same period of time, only a couple of weeks after the untimely and tragic death of Kimberly Kitching. And Kitching was... I mean, there are some similarities in 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 Kitching and uh, Conchetta Fiera of Anti Wells, and that is, you know, they're both sort of associated very much with sort of the conviction side of politics within their their um, their parties. Both kind of outspoken, both peddlers in intrigue in in some ways, really you know involved in in um, factional stuff. Kitching in the uh, in the Labor right in Victoria and 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 obviously fear of anti wells here in New South Wales, um, and they're also both quite warm individuals personally with a certain certain charisma. Now, unfortunately, Kitching's gone, but uh, the PM wasn't shy of talking about Kitching as he was trying to use that to put a bit of pressure on on uh, on Anthony Albanese. Uh, you know, it, it, it's just interesting to see he's now faced with the same circumstance. He's got a very senior woman who has been bumped into an unwinnable spot and who is lashing out ferociously and telling some home truths. You know, they can dismiss it as as sour grapes, and there's no doubt an element of that in this, uh, but there is a good deal of umbrage. This speaks to a, a, a deep battle with inside the the New South Wales division of the Liberal Party and deep umbrage and a loss of any real I think this goes to your point Maria about about the Praetorian Guard or lack of uh, around Morrison you know a lack of real authority or affection for this prime minister within his own party well i guess if we sort of step back a little bit um i think it is kind of interesting that this is the most 
uh, I guess, political point that has kind of come out of the the budget in a way uh, that it's once again, um, it's, there's like a, a deep irony, I suppose, this is another way of putting it, that, that character actually has um, once again become central to this political contest. And this this is a long-running debate within the Liberal Party. Like this is actually a battle that, that traces its origins back to the, the mid-1970s. And I will not relate how that is the case, but it kind of goes to a couple of important sort of factors that, that Jill highlighted, right, which is that, you know, yes, this is Definitely a debate about internal party democracy, but that is because it, it suits one side of the factional debate to to push forward internal party democracy because they have the numbers, right? So Ferrovanti <laughs> exactly. Wells faction has more uh, members because of the pattern of recruitment that has un- that has gone on within the Liberal Party. So the membership base of the Liberal Party is um, far more, um, you know, I guess right wing and Christian conservative than the average Liberal Party median voter and 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 that you know this whole kind of conflict is kind of really putting this up in lights that you know where the liberal party is at as an organization and where they are as a sort of uh you know aggregator of uh voters interests are are increasingly moving further and further kind of apart and it sort of explains why there are real challenges in the way Morrison has to kind of build a voting coalition. He's got to sort of satisfy these seats where these teal independents are pressuring the Liberal Party because, you know, their moderate MPs keep losing fights to the right and the centre-right who have been able to to dominate far more of the policy agenda over the life of this government, not necessarily the last two years, but the life of this government. That's an excellent piece of analysis. Very well put, I think. Uh, Jill, do you have uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, there's a pretty big elephant in the room here, and I'm willing to be spicy if no one else is. And, and that's Get into it. gender angle, right? Yes. We're looking for connections between Fiera Vanti Wells and Kitching, and they're both women. They're yep. both women who probably uh, wouldn't have described themselves as feminists uh, yep. 10 or 15 years ago when they were getting into par- uh, into Parliament, um, Fiera Vanti Wells before Kitching. But, you know, Kimberly Kitching had a long uh, history uh, around Victorian politics in particular and, and the um, sort of centre-right of the, of the Labor Party. These are women who were... The, at the very forefront of um, conservative, small C conservative women, uh, breaching the the sort of thresholds, the the glass ceiling in their parties, and they now exist. I'm I'm speaking slowly to choose my words very carefully. They now exist in a very highly charged uh, era for discussions around gender and gender politics and sexism and discrimination. And so I think they have, their experiences over two decades are fascinating, right? They came in when they had to be a very Thatcher-esque, you know, act like a man because you have to out-masculine the men. And now they exist in an era where femininity and uh, the differences between men and women in, in politics are not just important, but are, you know, agonised over. And so I think, I think Fiera Banti Wells in particular has leaned very hard on all of the, the, uh, all of the, the challenges that women in politics face now that she is in decline. And she is in many ways probably a woman out of era. 
right? And I'm really interested to hear what Leonora has to think about this because she is a woman in a very sort of masculinized um, uh, industry as well. And, and the way that we we do have to turn on our femininity sometimes and then turn it off at other times is is hard and fraught and it's hard to talk about, let alone to actually do. Yeah, it's a very good point. And, and there is quite a history of, um, of women uh, in, in the kind of era of politics you're talking about there, Jill, whose, whose feminism becomes slightly more pronounced, if I can be polite about it, when they've left or in, when they've just lost a, a battle. Um, uh, there are others, of course, many others now in the younger generation who are, who are strongly identified with it. I'm not trying to diminish it. Uh, it's just that sometimes we, we don't see some of these really strident comments coming out from some of those who've been around a bit longer until such time as, um, as, as things have, uh, um, you know, turned south for them. Look, let's take a quick break there. And when we get, uh, come back, we'll, uh, we'll talk about this budget because, uh, initially, I suppose that's what we thought we'd be talking about, but, as uh, a fear of anti-wells uh, probably intended, uh, a lot of the budget discussion has been derailed by the uh, by the fireworks in the Senate. So back in a moment. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, we had originally uh, thought we'd be talking just about the budget, but of course, as I say, the fireworks in the Senate uh, with Conchetta Fierra of Anti-Wells um, certainly derailed that to a, to a large extent, and there will be ongoing discussion of the issues around that. And a few people have joined in on her behalf since. Pauline Hansen and Jackie Lambie have both sort of jumped up in the Senate and said, yeah, yeah, I think he's a bully too, uh, which is uh, not going to, uh, you know... Um, be helpful for the Prime Minister as he weighs up uh, his decision as to when to go see the Governor-General. As, as Jill says, it could happen this weekend. It might not. Certainly senators have been uh, told that they are, this is coalition senators have been told that they are expected to be back in Canberra next week for estimates committee meetings. So at this stage, that's the, you know, they're, they're the signals they're, they're sending out. And the PM, as I said, has told a, an interviewer that uh, he wasn't planning to go to the Governor General's this weekend. But I, you know, I, I, I think Jill could well be right. Anyway, look, let's get back to the budget. And as I introduced at the start, we have. Dr. Leonora Riss from RMIT. She's a, an economist and uh, she's perhaps more qualified than the rest of us to talk about the budget. So, Leonora, I thought I might start with asking you just what your overall impression of the budget was. Sure. Thanks, Mark. And, you know, even as an economist, listening into your discussion about the political fireworks is still fascinating for me as well. You know, the budget, I'm I'm thinking about your discussion there about the the government overall and 
The budget is an opportunity for governments to really assert what do they want their legacy to be, you know, and what will their legacy be. And even before we open up the first page of the budget, we have to consider what is the economic climate at the moment because that sets us up to be able to evaluate is this responsible, sensible, uh, constructive policy as opposed to what is a political election-oriented policy. So even before opening up the first page of the budget, we have to keep in mind we're looking at an, at an economy where unemployment is strong, job opportunities are strong. That's in the wake of the government injecting a hefty amount of stimulus into the economy during the first year of the pandemic. $314 billion, uh, the government That's says, right. that it has injected into wage subsidies uh, during the pandemic. That's an astronomical amount of money. That's right. But, you know, at least we're seeing signs that it, it did pay off in terms of there are, there are absolutely some people out there, many people who are still struggling to get the hours they need and to get a good quality job. We know it's it's definitely it hasn't solved all the problems, but looking big picture, unemployment, we're now looking at um, potentially a rate of unemployment dropping below 4%. And I mentioned that because coming back to this story of what will the government's legacy potentially be, I think they've, they've swung this into an opportunity for them to, instead of being remembered as the government that brought this, uh, the budget back into black and back into surplus, they obviously had to abandon that that goal. They had they the now, cups made there. <laughs> they now, um, they now um, it seems, want to be remembered for being the government that brought unemployment below 4%. So it's like they've, they've changed their, their goal and they're going to um, – they're going to hope. I, I imagine that's that's the narrative that they are aiming to associate with this government um, in the history. Can I just stop you there, Leonora, and ask you this question? Does that mean, uh, if that's right, that that a conservative, a liberal conservative government is now sort of retooling, repositioning to make as its major claim uh, the policy outcome of what is essentially hyper Keynesianism in budget management, in economic management? Yeah, well, they've demonstrated that. They've demonstrated that when the government steps in and compensates for a, a collapse in confidence in the private sector and the, and the public sector uh, steps in there by way of government stimulus, it can reignite the economy. And, and that's what Keynesian would, would prescribe. Keynesianism would prescribe. Um, it's very much at odds with the, the, the traditional conservative story about being fiscally responsible, fiscally disciplined. And so we are seeing an about turn in this narrative, which I, which I think is fascinating because it goes to show how really a Budgets are a toolkit; they're not a goal in and of itself. And this one, especially, really, because this yeah. one's main job was to get them to the other side of the election. Really, wasn't it? it to, to be a credible for that, it needed to be a credible economic blueprint. It couldn't just be simply a whole series of, of voter bribes that would lead to inflation and and completely, uh, you know, lead to mayhem. Uh, but at the same time, it is largely a you know, it's it's it. The heavy lifting this budget was required to do 
is more political than the uh, the heavy lifting a budget, say, in the first year of a term yes, might ordinarily yes. be required. That's correct. We're at a different point of the business cycle now. We've moved from that from that recession period into this strong growth and upswing. And actually, this is why differentiating the political from the economics is really vital because the economic rationale would prescribe that this is not the time to keep spending. Those inflationary pressures, especially coming from the supply side of the economy, those production costs, those supply bottlenecks, um, barriers to labour force participation, that spells out a case for a government to be restrained from these broad-based you know, splashing cash and instead look at the supply side of the of the economy. This should have been a supply side budget and it wasn't. It was very much geared for political favour. Jill, do you think that's actually uh, just, I mean, as, as true as all that is, it just has to uh, obviously obey the, the political realities of where they are. They're just about to face an election. But they do come up with a a budget which is, which is even if we think about it politically, has, has sort of two almost contradictory narratives. One is we've done very well with the economy, we're excellent economic managers uh, and Australia is, 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 is better than the rest of the world and going gangbusters, look at the unemployment rate for example um, you know, and a range of other things. And the other narrative is these are uncertain times, uh, the war in Ukraine, uh, a whole lot of um, vulnerabilities and variabilities in the in the uh, in the environment. Not a time to change government. In fact, it's so uncertain, and the uh, cost of living is so difficult that we're going to give you some emergency funding. And so we've got you know cash cash handouts to uh, welfare recipients. We've got an increase in the low and middle income tax offset. Um, we've got the, the, the halving of federal, uh, you know, petrol excise. These are all things that are essentially emergency measures. Is the emergency economic or political? Well, it's, it's political. You know, as, as Leonora says, unemployment is going to have a forage in front of it again soon. We, we've written this out, right? I don't know how I'm not an economist, but, uh, we got through this somehow totally fine. Um, I think. The genius of this budget, the more that I dwell, like, you know, the more that I reflect on this, is that it's a complete Rorschach test. If you think <laughs> that the government has spent too much money and is being economically re- reckless, you can convince yourself of that from, from this budget. If you think that the government should be spending more, you can convince yourself of that in this budget too. Uh, I think it, you know, and so, so to that extent, it's just a, it's just a mirror of our, you know, previous partisanship. However, we feel about this government is going to reflect very strongly how we feel about this budget. Uh, and it's for the economists to actually try to, you know, parse out what is good economic policy and what isn't. Uh, I think the, the fuel, ta- uh, the, the fuel excise, uh, you know, yes, it's an emergency sort of response to a, a massive political problem. But it, it does put Labor in a really tough position. How does Labor go out? You know, we're recording this on Thursday. How does it not match that tonight uh, without looking like you are punching down on people who are doing it very hard in terms of petrol prices? But at the same time, that leaves uh, Labor with the same kinds of criticism, you know, of overexpenditure that the Liberals face. So, Oh, maybe I'm just getting cynical in my old age, but yeah, the more I think about it, the more I think this is a, a pretty, uh, a, a, trying not to swear, a pretty impressive budget. <laughs> so, so I think politically, that, politically, I should say. I think that is really 
I think that's um, really interesting, Jill, and, and kind of on the point there, like there's a couple of things going on here. Like one is it is sort of interesting that the, the government hasn't been able to kind of claim as much credit for for managing the, the pandemic as well as it has. And it's sort of an interesting kind of you reap what you sow kind of thing with with labor and the and the GFC um, that even though we get uh, lauded around the world for having done a really good job of, of managing large uh, systemic exogenous shocks uh, at home no one's happy uh, so that was the first thing I find really interesting this the second thing what Jill said, about the risks for labor, I think are actually kind of spot on. And I think they actually understand this, but, um, I don't, they don't, I don't think they have an alternative. And I don't think they think they have an alternative. And that is essentially, you know, they're hoping to win this election campaign by emphasizing the cost of living and wages growth and, you know, people doing it tough. Um, and the government has done some odd, uh, sort of things in the way it wants to, to, to spend money and, you know, six months of, um, you know, petrol excise and, uh, one-time boost to this sort of supposedly one-time uh, tax offset for middle-income earners. Uh, you know, these are effectively kind of like booby traps. And it does kind of raise the question, should Labor actually win this poll and have to actually govern? Well, what are they actually able to really do about wages growth, which is ultimately linked to a one-time boost in productivity during the mining boom, right? Sorry, a one-time boost in wages, uh, which was not linked to productivity. And this is like a long-term correction. Um, you know, what are they actually going to do to increase wages? Are they actually like advocating, you know, a wages breakout? Like, you know, we, we're, we're facing the risk of inflation. Um, I don't think we're really in wages breakout territory. No, though, no, we? no, we're not. But like, you know, Labor is arguing that your wages haven't increased for, for 10 years. The reason for that is because we had a huge spike in wages because of the mining boom. We didn't it didn't it wasn't matched by a productivity growth, and so we've seen a correction over the last ten years. And no one in politics has actually wanted to sort of well, let's say not, that. Yeah, but that's because it's not the whole story. There are people we we have had also a dramatic, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, Leonora. We've had a dramatic increase in precariousness in the workforce. We've got more people in part-time and casual work. That's why we saw so many people lose their jobs and get propped up uh, ideally by uh, by assistance through the pandemic. Some of them weren't, of course, because they had very little rights, uh, you know, casual workers and the like. And then we saw so many people come back on so quickly because that is the feature of a temporary and casualised workforce and that's why so many of them were women and the government saying, oh, what a great job we're doing with women's employment. Look at all the new jobs that have come back in that are that are owned by women. Yeah, they're owned by women, those jobs, temporarily owned by them in, in, in that sense. Um, but the labour market power of those people has been dramatically reduced over recent, you know, because of because of the, the changes in this political economy. We just don't have uh, the uh, the mechanisms at the moment that, or the leverage for getting people on the bottom rung better wages. So there are things governments can do. Uh, this government, for example, could be supporting uh, the aged care um, wage case that's being considered at the moment. That would go a long way to addressing the fact that. Nurses, uh, carers in aged care are getting 25 to 48% less than people, the comparable work in other parts of the healthcare sector. Um, you know, and these are mostly women. Uh, there are lots of things they could do. They, they, they're, they're the largest employer in the country by themselves, the federal government. They could actually, you know, unfreeze public sector wages. That would potentially have an effect. Leon, or any comments on any of what I've just said? 
No, Mark, I think you've, you have already identified, I think, the various levers that are at the disposal of, of governments that feed into uh, wage growth. So I think the story that the current Morrison government has tried to feed the general public is one of, well, wage growth is just an organic outcome of an economy when it's strong, it's growing, you know, it trickles down that somehow that that a, a strong, vibrant work economy will will transpire well uh, that wage growth will transpire from that but they have over time dismantled and weakened some of the institutional settings that facilitate that so I was also thinking along the lines of what's really important is for the government to assert its position on these fair pay cases such as the ones that are being heard at the moment um, in relation to aged care workers there are cases that are put before the commission on, on childcare, that is an opportunity for a government to play a role in, in setting those wages. There's also an opportunity to prop up um, female concentrated sectors as opposed to male concentrated sectors when you're deciding on which parts of the economy to channel your fiscal stimulus towards. So when we've seen uh, large amounts of government spending go towards infrastructure and construction and trades. That's great if you work in those fields. And this is where the gender lens is so important because mm. the same sort of support wasn't directed towards childcare and aged care. And part of that support is about uh, the workforce. So supporting that pipeline of workers and the current workers by way of wages, where again, the government can play a role there. Um, and also setting standards for uh, working conditions so that we see we see the retention of of those uh, workforces as well. Another we mentioned gig work also and casual casual work. Um, there's also a role there indirectly in for governments to set the architecture around regulation and protecting the rights of those workers. And that means that you're you're, you're tilting the, the the bargaining power a little more towards employees, given that that has been tilted the other way for many decades over time, so that workers' needs and and rights are factored in into. Um, these employment contracts. So government does have a role in that way. And I would say that over time, um, I think what we've seen is the Labor government in general putting aside their, their values statement and their ideology, they just have more experience in doing these things. And even I think back to when uh, JobKeeper was rolled out, yes, it's it saved a lot of jobs, it kept a lot of employees attached to their employer, which was important. But at the same time, because it was so broad-based and so hurried and perhaps there was a lack of consultation along the way, we, we now find out that so much of that support was given to companies and businesses that really didn't need it. So because that was came from a government that you know, that wasn't their forte, handing out, handing out assistance or designing uh, support mechanisms. Um, they haven't got a great track record. And so when the time came to do it, um, you know, the, the economic conditions necessitated something was needed. Um, they just didn't have that track record or that in-house expertise to be able to tailor it in a, in the most efficient and equitable way. Yeah, that's, 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 that's true. And it's interesting, even in aged care, um, the government, you know, defends itself saying that it's 
it plugged $17.5 billion into increased funding into aged care in recent years. The trouble is most of that money, because of the way they've done it, has ended up going to providers, not to aged mm-hmm. care workers. And even in this budget, Leonora, just quickly, because we're getting a bit close to time now, but uh, even in this budget, when you think about aged care as a, a federal responsibility and you think about childcare, something the, uh, the, the Labor opposition is uh, about to campaign on quite strongly, it has um, much stronger childcare uh, reform policy in the marketplace already. Were you surprised that this budget was largely silent in both of those areas? Yes, yes. Um, look, Maybe our expectations were too high, but but you know what what's needed is not just even if they were to announce something, you can't just announce more places without thinking about the supply side again. So where are the workers? Where is the resourcing? And is it being channeled towards workers? As you mentioned, um, a lot of that that funding is is going to the hands of the of the providers, the operators, not necessarily feeding through uh, to to the workers themselves. So what there should have been in the budget was some acknowledgement that if the aged care pay case goes ahead and is successful, where is the money that's earmarked in the budget um, to support that? Yeah, good um, point. So it it it, it I, I guess it indicates that they're not expecting it to be successful or that it just isn't on their radar. Can I ask you, all three of you, uh, and just get a quick answer from all three of you? It's a bit of a game, uh, uh, sort of a gear change here, but uh, I'm here with three very educated, intelligent women, um, been thinking about a lot of these issues in your different dimensions. What do you think to the proposition that um, that women as a dynamic in this election uh, could be important? Oh, well, I mean, I do think... Um we know we already know that women are more likely to vote for um, left wing parties, and this is a, a change that has ha- happened um, from moving from voting predominantly for right wing parties to moving for voting for left wing parties. And I do think, as I've sort of said before, that the pandemic has perhaps highlighted to perhaps a, a new cohort of women um, just how government could potentially make their lives easier through the provision of treat free childcare being the most obvious example. And then, you know, seeing what that is like and then having seen that being taken away. And that might perhaps uh, make this issue salient for a whole bunch of people who might not have really cared about it. Jill? Look, I think, I mean, obviously Maria's right. Uh, women since uh, since um, Julie Gillard's prime ministership have been moving more comprehensively towards the Labor Party in Australia. But traditionally, they were conservative voters. And I say they as though women are all, you know, one homogenous block, which absolutely they're not. But women were disproportionately like to, uh, likely to vote for the coalition in Australia. I saw a recent news poll that, that had aggregated um, a, a bunch of, of recent uh, surveys they'd run and they, they found that uh, women had better assessments, basically more favourable assessments of Scott Morrison than men did uh, and they preferred Morrison to Albanese on a few, like, you know, sort of key important measures, uh, which I thought was sort of interesting. I don't think that um, the hot elbow memes are really tricky <laughs> to the mainstream voters, uh, which you know, we shouldn't be surprised about. But yet we, you know, we consistently are surprised that Twitter and Facebook aren't real life. Um, I don't think there's anything to suggest really that, and again, you know, choosing words carefully, that um, the the median woman in Australia cares too much about sexual harassment in Parliament. I don't think these issues that we've all been focused on so much for the last two years will actually change votes on Election Day. I think per normal we will go back to uh, the economy, healthcare, education, 
Uh, in some elections, immigration, probably not this one so much. Maybe there'll be voters among us who are thinking deeply about national security, but that's how we vote. And uh, I don't think the women's issue, you know, that, that looms so large for a lot of us in our professional lives will will make much difference on election day. Yeah, Leonora, just to you finally, I mean, because I guess what was behind my question was I was thinking about, you know, Wayne Goss's famous observation, I think it was back in 96 when he said voters were, you know, quietly resolved to change the government. They they were, as he described it, waiting on the veranda with baseball bats for Labor. Um Slightly violent image, but um, uh, you know the point being that there can be this sort of subterranean shift as a result mm-hmm. of of the atmospherics of the images of politics really over recent times. Whether people have looked at Scott Morrison and thought, "I know a man like that," "I know a man who mm-hmm. you know behaves like that," um, what's your sense? Yeah, uh, again, I, I I would echo some of the other panelists' comments that we can't speak on behalf of all women. There's a lot of diversity. Uh, amongst females, uh, the female population, including a lot of disadvantaged and marginalised women who really don't have a, a voice at all. But I think overall, when we look at women's engagement in social, political, environmental, economic issues, we ca- we shouldn't underestimate women's political literacy, their economic literacy, particularly this younger cohort coming through, I, I mean, I teach econ- um, my, my economic students are in first year at university and, and you see they are engaged through social media, through technology, through greater channels of information. They're being fed more information to be attuned to these issues. And I actually do think that respect and integrity it does matter. I think that I think that transcends politics and economics and and when when women feel that they are part of a collective group within society where they can share their experiences with other women and they can and they know that that they're not alone but you know that they're part of a, a broader group I think we're seeing that mobilization of women outside of the formal political sphere perhaps but there is a there is a lot of action and advocacy happening at the moment. Um, amongst women's groups and with with male allies and supporters as well. So I actually I think there is a there are a lot of women looking at the political landscape at the moment, and for them, respect and integrity does matter. Hmm. Interesting. We'll see what happens there. Uh, that's uh, all we've got time for today. If we've been a bit longer than normal, but I think uh, if you're listening, uh, you've stayed with us all this time. You'll agree with me. This has been a really fascinating discussion, and uh, you know, with a federal election looming, perhaps that's our excuse for going a little bit longer and uh, and uh, dwelling on some of these issues. And we're going to have a lot to talk about over the next six or eight weeks, depending on when the starter's gun is fired and the date named, either probably the 14th or the 21st of May for that election. Leonora Riss, Jill Shepard and Maria Tafaga, thanks very much for coming on Democracy Sausage again. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Maria. Thanks, guys. Great. Thanks. And that's it for now. We'll talk to you again soon. Uh, And look out for uh, what we've got planned, a couple of interesting events, uh, Democracy Sausage-wise, for the election itself. Bye for now.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.